How many of you think the sermon would be more interesting if they go ahead and let Hun uh, Hudson come up here and, and sit with Poppy? It might be fascinating to see where that would go. Um, anyway, I believe that the secret for all of us, whether we're growing up or growing old, is to move through a process of going from questions to clarity. How many, how many of you would identify that you're still growing up? Anybody want to put themselves in that category? Still growing up? Interestingly enough, Dennis this morning did not put up his hand. And I called him out. I said, Dennis, put up his hand. There you go. Yeah, some of us are still in the process of growing up. How many of you are willing to admit you're kind of growing old? I'm going to have my hand up because some days it feels that way, right? Throughout our lives, we go through processes and phases where we learn things and, and we move from one thing to the other. But I believe with all my heart that especially in our Christian walk, we should move from the process of questions to clarity, that we should find the answers that, that will give us clarity. And oftentimes those answers are found in God's word. Now, there are certainly times when we discover the answers to questions and it only brings up what? More questions, right? Um, but I believe that growing and learning is a part of that process of moving from questions to clarity. And last week, um, we began a journey through the book of John, and that was John's uh, goal and his mission with the people that he was writing this letter to that we call First John. It's at the very back of your Bible, just a few books away from Revelation. Everybody seems to be able to find Revelation really easy. It's the last book in the Bible. First John is just a few books back from that. And John wrote this book to some people who were very confused. They had questions because of some false teachers that were bringing in teachings that weren't necessarily true into their midst. And so John was trying to give them clarity to help them to move from questions to clarity. Last week, we kind of did the introduction where John introduces Jesus to us. Before he deals with the heresies, before he deals with any kind of, of false teaching or wrong ideas, he tries to get right out in front of us who the answer to all of this is. And so he kind of went through and, and described who Jesus was. And as I said last week, it sounded kind of like an introduction. So let me just remind you of who John says that Jesus was. Jesus is the eternal. He existed from the beginning. He is the word of life. Not only that, but he is life itself. He doesn't just have life, he is life. And he's not only life, he is eternal life. He was with the Father in the beginning, but came to earth so that we could have fellowship with him and with the Father. And he wants to have a personal, ongoing relationship with every person who has ever lived, every single one, and that includes you, just in case you're wondering. I really hope that after last week, nobody who heard the message went away from here not knowing who he is. But if you did, and you'd like to know him, I'd love to have a conversation with you. This week, we're gonna kind of move forward where John gives us some clarity, not about who Jesus was, but about the problem of sin and its impact on our lives. So it's kind of like these first two weeks are a good news, bad news kind of situation. The good news is Jesus. He is always at the center of every piece of good news and every good gift that we have. He is the answer to everything. But the bad news is sin is still alive and well and working in the world. And so John is gonna help us clarify three things, three kind of heretical beliefs that, that the people were struggling with during the time that this was written. And so as promised, we're gonna treat this expositionally, we're gonna work from the text, and we're gonna walk down through these passages kind of as we go. 
So starting in 1 John 1, verse 5, which is kind of where we left off last week, this is what it says. And I'm going to read a verse, and then we're going to talk a little bit. We'll kind of ping-pong back and forth a little bit today. And it may feel more like a Bible study than a sermon. If that's not okay, I'm still the one with the microphone. So I guess you're going to have to get over it. Here we go. Um, This is the message we heard from Jesus. And now declare to you, listen to this, God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. God is light. Not God, again, has light. God is light. It's interesting that if you look at the definition of light, one of the primary properties of light is that it must shine. It must be seen to be light. Light really isn't light unless there's someone there to see it. You ever think about that? You know, in the beginning when God created light, he was the only one there to see it. And and Adam and Eve, once they were put on this earth, they began to see it as well and experience that light. But to say that God is light means that in some way God shares the properties of light. And I think the way that translates to us today is this, that God has been trying to be seen from the very beginning. God wants to be known from the very beginning of time. His whole mission in this world from the time of the fall through today has been for the human beings that he created to be in fellowship with him, to be able to see who he is, to get to know him, and to have relationship with him. And so, if you want to say it this way, God is attempting and has been for generations to shine in this world so that we can see him and know who he is. But the other part of that that concept of light is this idea that the Bible tends to ping-pong back and forth about that that light and darkness are seen as two very different things. And, And again, this isn't just a biblical thing. If you look throughout history, and if you were to do research in other religions, I would imagine you would find this to be true in them as well, that almost always light stands for good and darkness is kind of symbolic of what? Evil, right? They're two ends of the spectrum. Good on one side, evil on the other. Now, uh, throughout history, this has kind of been the case. I think in almost any writing that you're going to find from even ancient times, light and darkness have been pitted against each other. Uh, From an intellectual standpoint, light is truth, and darkness would be seen as ignorance or error. Um, Morally speaking, light is purity and darkness is evil. I think we all understand that. And I I think even in American society, there's an interesting example of this way back before my time. I know some of you younger people think, I'm so old, there couldn't have been a before my time, right? Um, And you older people are going, you're calling yourself old again, knock it off. I know what you're thinking. But back before I was alive, there was a show on this thing called television. We still have televisions today, but they are not like they were back then. How many of you still remember black and white TVs? How many of you had a black and white TV that only got two channels? How about one channel? Wow, some of you suffered like I did, I'm telling you. We, we only had a TV when I was young because my grandparents had gotten done with their TV and got a new one, and so they gave us their old one. And it didn't get any good channels. It only got the channels that had news and stuff on them, and that was terrible. But if I went to my grandma's house, I could see good shows, shows that were designed for people to actually be interested in, like kids like me. Now, interestingly enough, the show I'm talking about was actually way older than that and actually started out as a radio program, if I'm not mistaken. Can you imagine when they transitioned from a radio program to a television show? I mean, that's the first instance of stories taking on, like, visual shape. Like, people had done plays and things like that, but everybody in their homes, instead of listening to a story, could actually see a story. 
I think we kind of overlook how amazing that would have been. I mean, that is so cool. And interestingly enough, the show that I'm talking about is The Lone Ranger. How many of you remember The Lone Ranger? Yeah, buddy. The Lone Ranger, those were better times, in my opinion. Those were better times because with the Lone Ranger and all of the Westerns that came thereafter that were, you know, trying to to match that or mimic that or whatever, you always knew who the good guy and the bad guy were, didn't you? Why? Because the good guy had what colored hat? What color was the bad guy's hat? Light, darkness. So clear, right? In the olden days, you could tell who was the hero and who was the antagonist right away just by looking at their clothing. Nowadays, Hollywood has the idea that even our heroes have to be conflicted evil people. And it drives me crazy. You don't know who the hero is till the end of the movie, and half the time there's some weird twist and it's somebody you wish it wasn't. I don't know. Movies have come a long way, but back then it was so simple. Light versus darkness. God has always been symbolic or symbolized by light. And evil has always been symbolized by darkness. The Bible says clearly that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. In other words, there is no evil in him. There is no error in him. There is no ignorance in him. He is always right and true and pure. That's important because the very next phrase begins with the word so. Now, First service, they failed at this miserably. But do any of you remember preachers saying that when you see the word therefore, you have to look and see what it's... There's a few of you that remember. No, you guys never had people... Every preacher that I heard as a kid growing up always said that. When you see the word therefore, you gotta look and see what it's there for. And I'm like, man, I've heard that a thousand times. But you know what? It's a true statement. Because when you saw the word therefore in the older translations, that meant that what was coming was based on what what you just read. And so you had to look back to see what was coming forward. The word so in this instance is kind of that same thing. So when we get to verse 6 and we see the word so, this is based on the fact that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Because of that, he says, we are lying, in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with God but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sins. In other words, if you're walking with God, the light that he is in, the light that is him is so bright that you cannot possibly be living in darkness and walking with God at the same time. You cannot have fellowship with with a God who is light and does not tolerate darkness if you are living in the darkness. If you're claiming fellowship with God, but you have no desire to follow him, you have no desire to obey his commands, you have no desire to respond to the Holy Spirit's promptings deep in your heart when the Spirit tells you, hey, that's something you need to work on, or that's something that's interfering with your relationship with God, or that's something that's causing you to stumble. If you have no desire to follow God in that way and to allow your life to conform to his plan and his will, then you are not walking in the light. That's what John is saying. This is the basis. This scripture is the basis of what we call in the church the holiness movement. Have any of you heard that terminology before? In the church of God, if you don't know this, we are a movement that started in the late 1800s and we came out of and continue to be a holiness movement. And the long and short of that, what that means is this. 
We believe that when you become a Christian, when you accept Jesus into your heart, you don't go on living the same way that you used to. That when Jesus comes into your heart, the Spirit of God comes and lives in you and begins to, again, point out those things in your life that are not like Jesus. And when you compare your life to the life of a holy God and and to Jesus' example, the Spirit will begin to show you things that need to change, that you need to fix, that you need to clean up, that you need to get rid of. And as the Spirit gives you prompting, your job is to simply do those things and, and respond to that and be obedient to the Spirit's leading in your life. And the end result of that is this that after you've been a Christian for a while, you don't look like you used to. You live a different way. You talk a different way. You're probably gonna be more likable, to be perfectly honest, because all of the fruits of the Spirit that, that come up in our life as we become more like Christ are things that will make it easier for people to get along with us. They, they are naturally things that breed fellowship with one another. And so as a holiness church and a holiness movement, this is where we find the basis for that. John is essentially saying, listen, you can't follow God who dwells in the light and continue to tolerate darkness in your life. Now, what this does not mean is this. What this does not mean is that every time you make a mistake, God somehow has to walk away or dumps you off the train. That is not it at all. Because what God is looking for is a heart that is seeking to serve him, a heart that is seeking to be like him. And even though we may fail, as long as we are seeking to follow and become more like him, then then God is going to wrap his arms of love around us. As long as our sin is confessed and we are repentant, God allows us to continue walking in the light of his truth and of his word. Um, Relationship with God should make us more like him and as such should make us a better person or better people. Have you ever known somebody that was so good that they made you want to be a better person? You ever known anybody? Raise your hand if you can think of one person. See, for me, one of those people, I've got several in my life, but one of those persons was my mom. Uh, My mom was a great lady. Uh, She was at times crazy, as every child thinks their parent is. Amen? Amen. She was a horse person. Do we have any horse people here? Anybody like horses? Yeah. Taking, you know, having horses takes a whole special breed and a whole different level of patience because horses can be really obnoxious. Um, I grew up with horses, in case you didn't know that. Some people have asked me, why don't you have horses today? They're so wonderful. Yeah, it's because you didn't grow up with them. You know what horses do? They poop. (laughs) All the time. And as a kid, I had to clean that up all the time. You know what else they do? They eat. You know what they eat? Heavy bales of hay, which I had to stack all the time. Yeah, I won't be having horses anytime soon, but my mom was a horse person, and my mom was an interesting character. She had a psych-soc degree, psychology with a minor in sociology, I think. Her and my aunt had opposite degrees, but from Anderson University. My mom never really went to work. She worked for a short time at the Ypsilanti Mental Hospital, and then she, when she started having kids, she stayed home for the rest of pretty much her life. But she had that passion inside of her to help people. And she loved to help people. And so our little country church, the Wrights Corners Church of God, where Pastor Rob is now pastoring, my mom would play the piano some Sundays, and after she would play the piano, she would immediately get kind of surrounded by some of the people in our church that, how do I say this the nice way? They were the needy people. 
They were the people that a lot of people in the church would spend very little time talking to because they knew that if you opened a conversation with these folks, they were gonna tell you everything that was wrong with their, their life for the last three years and it was gonna take two hours. It was, it was a big investment of time and my mother would sit on the front pew and she took time for people that nobody else would take time for. And I can remember as a kid it being really annoying because I wanted to go home, right? And mom is sitting on the front pew counseling people all the time. And then these people would call at our house and she would talk to them while doing other things on the phone for hours. She always had time for them. The only time she rejected a call is when we were eating supper or eating a meal together. And she would say, nope, we're eating, gotta go, bye. And she would hang up. But as I watched my mom be that compassionate to people that nobody else ever wanted to be compassionate to, I found myself wishing I could be more like her. Do you get what I'm saying? And because she was so close to me and because she loved me and I loved her, I wanted to be like her in, in those positive ways. And you know what? If you walk side by side with Jesus, if you walk in relationship with God, there should be a pull, a draw for you to become more like him each and every day, to be the person that he was and to become more like him. God is someone that we should want to emulate. And if we have relationship with him, we should be walking in light and not darkness. As we kind of walk through that whole process, we come to the understanding that sin interferes with our relationship with God. And that's what the people in, in John's time were getting wrong because there were these teachers that were teaching all kinds of things that they thought were truth, but their lifestyle didn't match up to what they were saying. And so what John is trying to say to them is this. Listen, you cannot say that you're in fellowship with God and walk in darkness because your walk doesn't match your talk. And so the first thing that we need to know, the first thing that he clarifies is that sin destroys our relationship with God. You cannot walk in sin and walk in relationship with God. The second part that I want to draw your attention to is found in verse 8, and this is kind of where we'll, we'll kind of begin to unpack everything. If we claim, he says, that we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth, but if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Now, notice he says, if we claim that we have no sin, we are fooling ourselves. The way that the word sin is translated, it's, it's the word hamartia in the Greek, and it's actually translated as a noun in this instance, and, and the way that it's worded, it's like something that we own, okay? It's not an individual sin, like, you know, um, Pat, you know, slap me in the face, you know, and that's obviously a sin. No one should slap the pastor ever. That didn't go over like I thought it would. You may be okay slapping me. I don't know. Apparently they're okay with that. So anyway, it's not talking about a particular sin. The, the idea is this. The idea is that in our very nature, we own sin. In our very nature as human beings, we are sinful creatures. We, we kinda, it's kind of our baseline. It's, it's what we do. Our, our nature is sinful. And, and if we claim that we are not sinful creatures, he says we're just fooling ourselves. Now listen, you can fool yourself, but you can't fool everybody else. You may say, oh, I'm not a sinful creature. Everybody around you can tell you another story. Amen? How many of you would like to share with your neighbor right now how sinful? No, don't, don't go there. We'll just walk away from that. Um, but there is sin in our nature. And, and I know today there's a lot of conversation about, you know, well, people have worth and, and we're all good people. And I understand why people want to believe that. But the Bible does not teach that. It's an unpopular thing, what I'm saying right now. 
I believe that we are all sinful creatures. God created us to be good, but sin has interrupted that process and caused us inside to become sinful creatures. And because of that, our very nature itself is drawn to that which is sinful, unfortunately. And if you do not believe that I'm correct, if you do not believe that that sinfulness and and selfishness and all of this stuff is kind of our go-to, then you need to go to a preschool classroom and spend some time there. I know I've used this analogy before, but it's the best thing I can come up with. Yesterday, I got to go to a birthday party for Aubrey Bowserman. Did I say that? Man, I couldn't say it in first service. I couldn't say Aubrey, and I couldn't say Bowserman. Anyway, they had their birthday party for him, and so all these little kids were invited. It was the funnest party I've ever been to, adult or kid otherwise. It was so much fun. Pat was chasing grandkids around. He hurt his back. He won't admit to it, but he was this morning laying on the stage trying to stretch out his back. We had some serious fun, and here's why it was so fun. They brought um, electric Jeeps, you know, the kind you can get in and drive, and they put them in the fellowship hall in there, and there were other ride-on toys that the kids could go after, and if you want to see the carnal nature come out of a child, put two electric Jeeps in a room with like 10 kids that all want to drive it. I'm telling you what, there was some squabbles, there was some fight. Hudson kept running over to one, he'd start climbing in, and somebody would beat him to the punch, and he'd just kind of back off like, And you could see the look in his eyes. I know what he was thinking. I've seen that look in my daughter's eyes. And that look is, I'm about to kill you. I'm coming after you. uh, uh, Kylie has given given that look to me on more than one occasion as her dad. I'm going to get you, you know. I could see it. And then Isaiah. Isaiah, oh my goodness. That boy, I'm pretty sure, was running over kids on purpose. Chasing them down. Yeah, and this was Clementine. Foot on the gas, hands in the air. I kept saying, steer, steer. Boom, man, she hit one table and chair so hard it moved the whole table like over like three feet. It was awesome. It was so fun to watch. But let me tell you something. You see it. Their propensity is to selfishness. Their propensity is to not share. Now, they're okay getting along with each other until one of the other kids gets in their space or takes their stuff or wants what they have. And then you see the angry ugly come out. And I got news for you. (laughs) It's not just preschoolers. Right? Think about it. The struggles that we have as adult believers to rein in the desires of the flesh, as Paul calls it, the natural propensities to do the wrong thing instead of the right thing. Now again, many of you have been Christians a long time and and are far along in your journey to controlling that, but it is a battle that wages within us long after we follow Jesus because it is in our nature. It is something that is a part of us. Um, We need to examine in our own lives the temptations that are constantly before us because they will always be right under the surface. And and the sad thing is this. The the, um, society that we live in teaches us that whatever our bodies crave or whatever our minds can imagine, that we should pursue that. And if if it's okay with our mind and our heart, it should be okay with everybody else. And, And I got news for you. There are things that we crave that are not good for us. I I shared this example first service, so I have to do it again. I'm a male, 
And everybody knows what male's problem is. Our eyes see things and, and we are turned on by our eyes. Now, I am married to the most beautiful woman in the world. She will always be that to me and I have always been faithful and will always be faithful. But there are times when I open my phone and there's a stupid app on there called Snapchat and my children refuse to not use it because that's where all the good pictures of the grandkids are. So I kind of have to have it. But every once in a while, it flips from whatever they sent to the story page. And you know what's on the story page? Images target at males between the age of 40 and 60. You know what most of those images are of? Women. Mostly scantily clad. And you know what frustrates me? Is every single time that it crosses in front of my face, I feel the pull. I don't succumb to the pull, let me be clear. But I feel the pull. Now what society would teach us, well, that's a natural desire. You should just follow that. You should explore that. You should see where that leads. And I've got news for you. I know where it leads. It leads to the destruction of my life and all of my relationships. Should I follow it? Society says I should. You see, here's the problem. Our world around us has forgotten that we are not the animals. God created the animals with no morality. He created them to simply obey impulses. But we are human beings. Do you remember the part where God said we will create man in what? In our image. We are not just animals. God has given me as a man the choice and the right and the morality to choose. I am not going to follow the impulses of my flesh because that would be destructive. And you know what? Society would like to see us all just become like the animals and follow our baser instincts. But friends, the society that that builds is not one I want to be a part of. And we're seeing it happen. Am I right? Just because it's part of our nature doesn't mean that we should follow it. In fact, we should do the opposite. He talks about the sin nature, and even David in Psalm 51 makes this observation. I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. I like the older translations which simply say, in sin did my mother conceive me. That seed of sin is a part of who we are. It is a part of our nature. But the good news is, John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, all of them and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Man, I'm out of time, and I got one more point. Here we go. It's going to go fast. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. Um, My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins and not only our sins, but the sins of the world. Let me very quickly summarize. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned. Now that sounds a lot like verse 8, doesn't it? But, but it's different because this time he's using hamartia as a verb. He's saying, if I claim that I haven't sinned. Before it was, if I claim I don't have a sin nature. Now it's, uh, if I claim that I haven't um, acted on that sin nature. If I haven't done a specific sin. 
So he's saying, essentially, not only are we in denial about the fact that we don't have a sin nature, but these people that are teaching them and taking them astray are in denial, or at least they're claiming that they have never acted on their sin nature and have never committed any sin. And it's interesting because he says, if that's your claim, you're calling God a liar. How many of you think that's a good idea? Probably not. You're calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in your hearts. Romans 3.23, the words of Paul, for everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Can you say this with me? Say, I am not perfect. Okay, you don't believe it. I am not perfect. Now turn to your neighbor and say, you are not perfect. Some of you backed off. Men, it's okay to say this. The pastor told you to. Turn the other way. Say, you are not perfect. Once again, if you believe you're perfect, there is just someone right around you that is ready to shatter that bubble for you. And if you want to know all the ways I'm not perfect, you can ask my wife or any of my children, and they have thousands of ways. Some of them are not true, by the way. I'm better than they think I am, but I'm definitely not perfect. We are not perfect creatures. Not only is it in our nature, but we succumb to that nature on occasion. And anybody who says they haven't is calling God a liar. Listen, Paul, or John rather ends by giving us again that wonderful part that says, my dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. In other words, John's hope is exactly what these people are talking about. These people that have been teaching the wrong thing are saying, we don't have any sin in our lives. And John says, my hope for you, and I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. It's the aorist tense, hamartia, not even once. That's the goal. That's the, the object. I would love it if you never sinned even once. That's the standard that we're to be held to. But then he goes on to say what? But if you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, who is the righteous one, who is the very one who paid the penalty for your sin. You see, John, at the same time, sets the standard so high. And friends, Christians today don't want to set that standard that high. I, I hear a lot of people talking about, well, I'm just doing the best I can. You know, I'm pretty sure God's okay with this pet sin or that pet sin. No, listen. God's desire for you is for you to live out from under the strain of sin and the consequences that it brings into your life. Not even once is the standard. But he also understands that because we are human, we are not perfect. And even if we fail, there is an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who will go before the Father and plead our case. And you know what the result of the court case is between us and God? It is absolutely that we are guilty. Say, I'm guilty. Because you are. But the wonderful thing about Jesus' sacrifice is that even though we're guilty, he already took our punishment. Amen. And so we don't have to live under the sin anymore. But listen to me, to continue to live in sin not only kills our relationship with God, but it basically spits in the face of the Savior who paid the penalty for our sin. And so John's goal is for us to be pure and righteous and holy, but at the same time to offer the fact that there is always a way to come back even if we fail. Let me just summarize in conclusion. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. If you have fellowship with God, then you will walk in the light, 
If you don't, then that is evidence that you do not necessarily have the relationship with God that you thought. Sin is a part of your nature. And all of us do act in accordance with our nature and sin from time to time. Jesus Christ died so that you could still, even in your sinfulness, have a relationship with God, which will be evident as we allow the Holy Spirit to purify our hearts and make us more like Jesus every day. And, you know, that would be a good mission statement. More like Jesus every day. Here's my question. Is that happening in your life? Do you on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, or even any time, hear the Holy Spirit prompting you in the right direction, pushing you to do the right thing and not the wrong thing? Because if the Holy Spirit of God is working inside of you, then I believe we will see progress. And I am encouraged by that. And I hope you are too. Let me pray for you and then we'll close. Father, I thank you for the patience of this group. I know that talking about sin for a whole sermon is not necessarily the most fun topic for a Sunday morning. But working directly from the biblical text means that we have to cover what is there and be honest with ourselves about the condition that we're in. And I know sin is not a popular topic because we would all love to believe that we're just okay. And yet your, your word clearly teaches that we are not. Thankfully, your word also teaches that there is a way that we can be. But it is only through the blood of Jesus and the relationship that we build with him and with you through his death on the cross of Calvary. As I've said last week and many times before, God, if there are those that are here that have not experienced your love and grace through what Jesus did on the cross, please give them the courage to come and talk to me today or someday so that I can help them to find the beginning point of that relationship with you and help all of us who have prayed the sinner's prayer at some time in our history, help us to become fervent in our relationship with you so that if we find ourselves walking in darkness, um, we, we will know it and we will be ready to make the changes necessary to come back to you and to live in your glorious light. God, I don't want to see the sin in my life or anyone else's separate them from your love and your grace. Help us to be like you, to walk with you, and to live in your light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.